If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke. This morning we will be looking at the second half of Luke chapter 13, from verses 18 through 35. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Luke chapter 13, beginning at verse 18. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For I tell you, many will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from the east and the west and from the north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. At that very hour, Some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell the fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem." Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes. In the name of the Lord. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, please make your word clear to us. 
It was written by your Holy Spirit. And we ask, O Lord, that your Spirit would teach us, encourage us, and equip us to not only hear and learn from your Word, but to live it out. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. A question that I think we should ask ourselves is what do we really want? What is the kingdom of God really like? What do we expect? At this time of year especially, it is a relevant question. At this time of year when it seems that everyone in our society assumes that the kingdom of God is a generic niceness that comes over people, regardless of what they have done or what they believe. It is a kingdom of their own fashioning, a kingdom over which they are king. This is, of course, why Jesus, the baby in the manger, is so popular. Whereas Jesus, the teacher, Jesus, the crucified, is so despised. But they are one and the same Jesus, aren't they? And so as we think about our Lord Jesus Christ and the kingdom, and we look here at Luke chapter 13, I'd like us to ask ourselves three questions. First, what is the kingdom like? Second, what is the way into the kingdom? And then third, what is the king like? Three questions that Jesus will answer for us from this text to describe for us what the kingdom and the king are like. Well, let's begin then with verse 18. Jesus says, What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? Now, the first thing that we are going to see is Jesus is going to tell us two parables. A parable of a mustard seed and a parable of leaven. And one of the things that is very evident from this is that the kingdom of God does not begin with power. Now, this is important for us to remember because if we are honest with ourselves, we like a winner, don't we? If you doubt this, just go and track the sales of sports jerseys. Whoever wins the championship, everyone wants their jersey, no matter where they live. We like to tell people that America is the best country. We love to tell people that Texas is the best state. We like a winner, don't we? And and the apostles were no different. Can you imagine the apostles and how annoyed they would be, Jesus' disciples, as they hear the Pharisees attacking Jesus? going after Jesus, criticizing Him for His work and for His teachings, they would be discouraged. And Jesus would understand this. He knows our nature, that we like a winner, but He has to explain to us that the kingdom of God is not simply about power and winning. The kingdom of God is established according to God's decree. And the first thing that Jesus tells us in both of these parables, the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven, is that the kingdom of God begins small. He tells us that this 
is like a mustard seed. Matthew describes it in even more detail. He tells us that a mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. If you've ever seen one, it fits on the tip of your finger. It is less than a millimeter wide. It is not something to be remembered or looked at. And then, as Jesus tells us about a woman with leaven, she is taking some yeast, a handful perhaps, and sticking it in some flour. Now, you can't think it's a handful in a bowl on your counter. No, Jesus tells us she takes three measures. Three measures of flour is 50 pounds of flour. It will feed more than a hundred people. And a handful of yeast goes into that flour. It's small in comparison. This is what the kingdom of God is like. It begins with Jesus, doesn't it? It begins with Jesus and with one act. The act of a sacrifice on the cross. And it expands to twelve disciples. And then perhaps, as we see at the beginning of Acts, a few hundred followers, insignificant in the face of the world. The gospel begins in a small, despised, insignificant part of the world. It doesn't start in Rome. It doesn't start in the capitals of the world, the rich farmlands of Egypt. No, it starts in a miserable place. If you lived in Rome and they told you you were going to go to Jerusalem, you would be upset. Why do I have to go to those backwoods? It's horrible, hot, dusty, dry, miserable. You see, even the main truth of the gospel was designed to be small. You remember what Jesus says, the truth of the cross is, it is a stumbling block to Jews and it is foolishness to Gentiles. This is not designed to entice people to join the team. It's small. It's insignificant. But you see, the other thing that Jesus tells us is, though it has a small beginning, the kingdom of God surely grows. It grows first and foremost because the kingdom is the kingdom of God and it grows by the power of God. Now, one thing we have to be careful about is that the parables do not tell us how fast or how slow the kingdom will grow. If you think that, you will be confused. You will say to yourself, does it grow really slow like a tree? Or does it grow really fast like bread rises overnight? You see, that is not the point. Jesus is not telling us about the rate of growth, but he is telling us about the sureness of growth. One of the things that both trees and flower as it is rising have in common is that they grow imperceptibly, don't they? How many of you children have spent a fun summer day standing outside watching the tree grow? That is fun times, isn't it? Watching the tree grow up and shoot. No, of course it isn't. You can go out day by day by day, and you don't even notice it. The same thing with bread, isn't it? You don't stand there and watch the bread rise and bubble and see the yeast is working here or there. No. What you typically do is you put it into the flour, the yeast, 
and then you set it off someplace in a large bowl or a container and you put something over the top of it. And almost magically, it grows and rises. This is what the kingdom of God is like, Jesus says. He's specifically using examples that we can understand and that we know and we have seen to describe something for us that we need to know. Now, when something grows imperceptibly, that can be hard, isn't it? It can be frustrating. How many of you young people or even not so young people when you were younger went up to that magic part of the wall in your house, the part of the wall where you marked the progression of your growth? And you go and you stand up against it and you say, did I grow? Oh, no. I'll come back next week. Did I grow? Mm. It doesn't seem like you're growing at all, does it? And then an uncle or an aunt or grandma or grandma comes to visit and they say, wow, you've grown like a foot since I've seen you last. You see, when we are in the middle of it, it's imperceptible. But it is real. It's just like the growth of a tree. The kingdom of God grows. It grows imperceptibly, but it grows extensively. Jesus gives us this example with the mustard seed. It goes from one millimeter, the smallest of all seeds, to a tree that can grow to 15 feet, where birds can come and nest in its branches. Think about that. From a seed that would fit on the tip of your finger to having a flock of birds sitting in it. It grows large. It grows strong, and it will continue to grow until it reaches its determined height. This is what the kingdom of God is like. Jesus is telling us that it will continue to grow until all of the nations, all of the birds of the air, as it were, have been reached. We have to remember that the gospel is not an American thing. It does not depend on the United States. It does not depend on us. Just as the gospel was not a Jewish thing, the kingdom of God expands and fills all of the world, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. It grows extensively. But it also grows intensively. And this is the difference between the parable of the yeast, and the parable of the mustard seed. The mustard seed shows us the extent of the growth, but the yeast shows us the intensity of the growth. You see, the real power of the kingdom is seen in the effect that it has on people like you and me, on a society that seeks to follow the Lord, on the world itself. Almost... Every single thing in the world that is for good and encouragement is a direct result of the growth of the kingdom of God. An emphasis upon education so that people could read the scriptures. Human rights were non-existent as a category before biblical Christianity made itself. Hospitals were non-existent before the gospel and the kingdom said we must care for those who are in hurt 
and in pain. Orphanages were places where children were sent to die before the Gospel came and said, we must care for those who are without parents. Almost everything that we see and take for granted today, that women and children are not treated like property, that goodness and mercy are to be shown to others, all of them are a result of the work of the kingdom of God. And just like the yeast thrown into that flower changes it forever, makes it useful, nutritious, delicious, beautiful even, so the kingdom of God does for this world. It is intense. The growth of the kingdom is what brings about change. More change than we can see at first glance. More change than we can even understand. Now, do not get me wrong. This does not mean that every area of the world is Christian. Or will be Christian. No. But what it does mean is that there is a Christianizing influence that we should see and work toward in every area of life. We should never say, you know, the kingdom doesn't really affect my work. I don't need to be a Christian at work. You know, the kingdom doesn't really affect how I treat my neighbors. I don't need to worry about that. The kingdom doesn't need to affect how I treat my parents or my children or my grandparents. No, the kingdom affects everything about every aspect of your life. The kingdom of God affects how you dress. Have you thought about that? The kingdom of God affects how you dress so that you are not to dress in a way that provokes sin and lust in others. The kingdom of God also affects the way that you dress that you are not to flaunt wealth in front of others who have less. Every aspect of your life, no matter how small, no matter how mundane, is affected by the extensive, intensive growth of the kingdom. If the kingdom is so important, if the kingdom affects everything that we are, then I would think a natural question we must ask ourselves is, what is the way into the kingdom? And Jesus has this very question asked of him in verse 23. Lord, will those saved be few? Now, you have to understand what is going on here. There are two misconceptions we have about this. The first is, we say, oh yeah, there's only going to be a few people saved. There's a lot of things you have to do to be saved. You have to pray, you have to go to church, you have to memorize, you have to do three good deeds a day, you have to make a pilgrimage to Israel, all of these things you have to do. Now, there's, there's another thing that is not going on here. We think this question is being asked, Oh Lord, it's so horrible. There will only be a few people saved. Please tell me otherwise. Tell me everyone will be saved. No, the question's actually being asked here out of arrogance. You see, it was the common belief of the Jews that everyone, with minor exception, who was not a Jew, would not be saved. You see, 
This man is asking Jesus, please verify for me that I'm right, that all these horrible pagan heathens are all going to hell, because I don't want to be with any of them. But of course, Jesus, all of the few, every Jew will be saved, right? You see, implicit in this question is the assumption that everyone who is on the inside, everyone who is a Jew, except for people who are unbelievably wicked, they're all saved. When we think about it that way, then we can fall into this trap, can't we? We think, well, maybe it's few that are saved, but at least all of us sitting here are saved. At least everyone in America who mentions the word God, at least they're saved. Right? And we become complacent. We think salvation is something that comes to us because of who we are or where we live or what we have done. This is what our world faces. Very little effort is required to be saved. If you simply mention God or send a Christmas card to someone, you must, of course, be on the inn. It's interesting, though, that Jesus does not answer the question. Does He? Look at what Jesus does. He doesn't say, yes, there'll be few, no, there'll be many, or I'm not sure. He says, strive... To enter through the narrow door. Now, don't take that as verification that those that are saved will be few. Jesus deliberately does not answer the foolish, arrogant question. Instead, He gives the man and you and me a command. It's as if He said in Fuller, don't worry about how many people are going to be saved. Ask yourself the question, am I saved? Am I striving? Can I find the door? Have I entered in? Put your focus there. And the language that Jesus uses is vivid. He says, strive to enter. The word in the Greek is the same word that we get agony or agonize. This is like when you're running that last mile of the marathon. This is like when you're playing the last three minutes of the basketball game when you're tired and your muscles ache and the lactic acid has gotten into you and you don't know where to go and you've got to move on just a little bit more. You know the saying, no pain, no gain. It's true after a fashion in spiritual things as well. There is an agonizing that we must undergo. The way is indeed narrow. It is hard. It requires belief in what Jesus says is true. It requires submission, giving up ourselves and submitting to the authority of God. And it requires faith and trust, knowing that in the end, we can never check all the boxes. We can never do all that we think we can. We can't even find the door unless the Lord is merciful and gracious to us and grants us faith that we might trust in Him that this is the right door, that these are the right things, that He is the one who will save us. Then we are lost. Because you see, the way is narrow. It's not what we expect. If we're honest, far too often we act as if God depends on us rather than we depend on God. Think about even the way we think about a narrow door. 
What's your first thought about the door being narrow? Why can't it be wider? Why does it have to be so difficult? Why do I have to strive? Beloved, the problem is not with the door. It's God's house. He can determine where to put the door. He can determine how big the door is. Who are you to tell him where to put his door? Who are you to tell him how you must enter in? What would you think if your neighbor came over to visit you and they saw the door at your front of your house and they said, you know what, I'm not really fond of that. You know what I think I'm going to do? This spot right over here on the side. Let me get a chainsaw and I will just go right through this wall. That's where I think the door should be. It's foolishness, isn't it? And yet we think we can tell God where the door to His kingdom is and what it should be and what it should look like for our convenience and pride. The problem is not with the door. The problem is with people and that people think that they are fine, that they are already saved, that they don't need a door, that they don't need a house. As a matter of fact, they think they're already inside. When the wind is blowing and the rain is falling on their head, they think they're in the living room. And it is our job, as those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to take the message of the Gospel to them, to tell them of the rain pelting their head, to tell them of the wind whipping at their body, and to show them and lead them to the door. Because the consequences are dire. Do you see what Jesus says? Jesus says in verse 28, In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And there will be Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And you won't be there. Hell is a place of anguish and affliction. Hell is a place of regret and remorse. That's what the tears mean. Hell is a place of trauma and rage. That's what the gnashing of the teeth is. And hell is a place that we do not expect to be. We expect to be with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But the question comes to you this morning. Do you know what the kingdom is like? Do you strive to enter the kingdom? Do you long to go through the door? Do you love the king and the kingdom? Or are you complacent? Mom and Dad took us to church every day. We said blessing at every meal. We own a Bible. We must be fine, right? You see, what Jesus is saying here is we should be striving with every nerve to enter the kingdom through the door. Why does Jesus do this? The answer to that is in our third question. What is the king like? The first thing that we must understand about the king is that he is determined. What we have just described about the kingdom of God and Christianity is that the kingdom of God is the most exclusive and the most inclusive of anything. It is exclusive. The way is narrow. It is only by believing the truth as set forth by Jesus Christ in His Word that you can enter the kingdom. But it's also the most inclusive. You could be tall or short. 
You could be old or young. You can have a gigantic amount of hair or none. You could be skinny or heavy. You can have any kind of skin tone. You can have grown up in any place in the world. It is completely inclusive. The way is indeed narrow, but the invitation is indeed broad. We don't need to worry about making people in Africa Americans first before they can be Christians. We don't need to be worried about telling people in Japan they need to act in a very certain Christian way before they can come to Jesus. No, our mission is broad because the way that is narrow has been set by Jesus. And He thrusts aside all of our categories of age and of gender and of size and of education and of upbringing. And He thrusts them all aside and He says there is but one narrow way. Believe that I am the way, the truth, and the life. If that was our message this season... Katie would be turned upside down. The way does not include bells or mangers or Christmas cards or carols or any of the nice trappings of the season. The way is based upon faith in Jesus Christ. The king is determined. Do you see what he says when he is threatened with death by the Pharisees? The Pharisees are trying to drive him away. They say, Herod wants to kill you. Now, this is not an idle threat. Herod has just cut off the head of John, Jesus' cousin. And do you see what Jesus answers? He says, I have work to do today, tomorrow, and the third day. It's a determined amount of time, but I will not be swayed one moment off my work. I am not afraid, Jesus says. I will finish what I start, Jesus says. But that's not just true in a grand sense. It's also true for you. You can't scare Jesus off. You're afraid of that sometimes, aren't you? When you think about what you've done, things you've left undone, and regrets, and you wonder, have I driven Jesus out? You can't scare Jesus off. And He won't give up on you until He is finished. If you have faith in the Son of God as the Savior, not only of mankind, but of you and your soul, He will not finish until He has made you into His image. He will burst aside those sins that seem to entangle you every single day. He will restore the relationships that you keep messing up over and over again. Jesus will not give up until it is done. Until it's finished. Final thing that we see about our king is that he is compassionate. Jesus here is emotional. Do you see it? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you. Now, you need to put out of your mind forever that silly, nonsense picture of a serene Jesus with long hair looking up into the moonlight. Jesus was a man who loved and who hated. He hated sin. Jesus was a man who felt compassion. Jesus was a man who was excited. Emotions are not bad. Now, we need to learn that as Reformed Christians. Emotions are not bad. 
We can exercise our emotions badly, but emotions are not bad. Jesus is showing us a proper emotion. He desires the people to come to Him. How often have I called you, He says. He wants them in spite of their rebellion against Him. But they would not come. They would not come because they were self-satisfied. They would not come because they did not want heaven and Jesus. They wanted something of their own fashioning. So Jesus puts two choices in front of us. There is a sad lament of exile. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You will be cast into exile. You will be with your house forsaken. Or there is a coming to Jesus and saying, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. The choice is put before you. Will you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and glorify Him and His name and desire to see His kingdom advance in His way according to His plan? Or will you seek yourself and face exile and pain and misery and tears and gnashing of teeth? This season, that is the choice. It's not which device or game you'll buy to put under the tree. The choice is, will we follow the king through the narrow door into his kingdom? Let's pray.